President Biden has made it official he's running for a second term in the White House. In his announcement today, he said we're in a battle for the soul of this nation, and he asked, will we in four years have more rights or fewer? Biden's bid coming up on this Tuesday, April 25th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, at many synagogues across the U.S., there's a prayer for the state of Israel said in every Sabbath. But with the Israeli government's recent controversial move, some congregations are reconsidering it. Also, singer-songwriter Lucinda Williams talks about her new memoir, Don't Tell Anyone the Secrets I Told You. And parents do a lot of talking, but when they're kept as pets, they can get lonely. Scientists, including from Northeastern and MIT, have found that having them video chat with other parrots can help. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden is seeking re-election, and in his first remarks since making that announcement today, he spoke at a legislative conference for union workers and touted his administration's success in bolstering manufacturing in this country. But he says there's still more work to be done. Here's NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Hours after making it official that he's seeking a second term, President Biden got an enthusiastic reception at the conference for the North America Building Trades Unions. The president said it was time to, quote, finish the job. And he criticized Republicans in Congress, namely House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, for their budget plan that would make cuts to social programs. The threat the MAGA Republicans pose is to take us to a place we've never been. Biden said some people look at the economy through the eyes of Wall Street, but he says he looks at it through the eyes of Scranton, Pennsylvania and Claymont, Delaware, where he grew up. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Biden's announcement today could lead to a Biden-Trump rematch. Meanwhile, a civil trial involving former President Donald Trump is underway in New York. NPR's Ilya Merritt supports columnist E. Jean Carroll is accusing Trump of sexual assault and defamation. Safety is a big, big concern at this trial. Uh, there's a lot of security. Jurors who were questioned uh, were questioned anonymously. They're, they did not give their names. They were known only by their numbers. And that's how they'll be known throughout the trial, not only to the public, but also to the attorneys, to the parties, and to the judge. They will be escorted in and out of the building by vehicle. They'll be dropped at, at drop-off points, which are not shared with the public. All of this in an effort to uh, really ensure their safety uh, and ensure that this trial can run smoothly. NPR's Ilya Merritt's reporting. Tributes are pouring in for Harry Belafonte, a champion of civil rights and revered actor and singer. He died today at the age of 96. NPR's Alana Weiss looks back at Belafonte's legacy. Belafonte brought a trademark calypso sound to American radio waves. The Jamaican-American won multiple awards, including several Grammys, a Tony, and an Emmy. Belafonte was a barrier-breaking star through the 1950s and 60s, a time when the civil rights movement was transforming the nation. Harry Belafonte was a confidant of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and was active in social justice into his 90s. I've always been opposed to injustice, uh, having been a victim of it. I've always been for women's rights, primarily because I saw what happened to my mother as a domestic mm -hmm. and what happened to her as a woman. I've always been for people coming together. Alana Wise, NPR News. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. An Ashland woman and her 18-month-old daughter, who were trapped in Sudan, have safely traveled out of the country as the fighting continues there. Relatives of Trillian Clifford and her daughter say the two are now making their way back to the U.S. Clifford was working as a teacher in the country. Her sister-in-law, Rebecca Winter, says it will be several days before Clifford is back in Massachusetts. We're still very nervous for her because... We understand that she still has a lot of travel ahead of her and there are security concerns involved. And then at the same time, I can't ignore the fact that so many people are still stranded in Sudan, both foreign nationals and innocent Sudanese civilians. Winter says U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren's office was instrumental in the evacuation. Two black runners groups whose cheer parties were blocked by Newton police at the Boston Marathon say they still want someone to take responsibility for what happened. Newton police officers with bicycles lined the course to separate the spectators from the runners. They did so after they say race organizers notified them about fans walking into the street. WBR's Ali Jarmanning has more. The Boston Athletic Association organizes the race and met with the groups last week. It said in a statement it could have done better to create an inclusive environment. And Newton's mayor says she wants to meet with the groups. But Liz Rock, leader of the running group Trailblazers, tells WBUR's Radio Boston that response hasn't been enough. I just want to hold someone accountable. I'm not sure who. I think it's a multiple people who should be held accountable. But I'm just kind of angry and frustrated. The groups are working with civil rights attorneys calling for an investigation into the police response. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Leaders in the Worcester County town of North Brookfield will meet tonight to revisit a vote earlier this month that could put the kibosh in an upcoming Pride event. The select board initially gave the approval for the gathering, but two weeks ago it revoked that permission because the event included a drag show. The board ruled the show violated restrictions on adult entertainment. The ACLU has threatened to sue if permission for the show is not reinstated. In the forecast, lots of clouds around now. They should continue in the night tonight, maybe some showers off and on, down around 40 degrees. Tomorrow, partly to mostly cloudy, high temperatures in the mid-50s, which is where it is right now. 56 degrees in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by WETA, presenting the new history TV series, Iconic America, Our Symbols and Stories, with David Rubenstein, airing tomorrow at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on PBS stations and streaming on the PBS app. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. This time yesterday, we were telling you about the big expected announcement from President Biden. And today, he released a video to make it official. He is running for re-election in 2024. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America. And we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, We have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. It's a message that Democrats feel worked well for them during the midterms, putting abortion, voting rights and democracy front and center. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith has more. In many ways, this announcement shouldn't come as a surprise at all. Biden has been saying he plans to run for re-election since his earliest days in office. In his first formal White House press conference back in March of 2021, Biden was pressed on his plans. No, an answer is yes. My plan is to run for re-election. That's my expectation. 
The questions kept coming in interviews and press conferences, in part because at 80 years old, Biden is already the oldest president in U.S. history. Many expected him to be a transitional figure, defeating former President Donald Trump and then clearing the way for the next generation of Democratic leaders. But Biden has also made it clear he isn't done. Let's finish the job. Biden repeated that line so many times in his State of the Union address, it was hard to miss the message. And although Biden's approval ratings have been underwater for most of his presidency, in today's hyperpolarized political climate, that may matter less than ever. That's according to Kristen Soltis Anderson, a pollster at Echelon Insights. Joe Biden may not have a ton of voters who are fired up for him, but that also may not be necessary if Republicans nominate a candidate who is extremely off-putting to a majority of the electorate. Like Donald Trump, for instance, who has embraced extremism and still denies the outcome of the 2020 election. The former president is expected to face a vigorous Republican primary, but he remains the GOP frontrunner. Biden has already beaten him once. And Jim Messina, who ran President Barack Obama's re-election campaign in 2012, says Biden now has a record to run on, one he doesn't get much credit for. So many voters think about politics on average four minutes a week, and they, they don't know that he passed huge health care breaks and the largest payment on climate change in, in world history and uh, lowered prescription drugs and got all these things done. We have to talk about that stuff. But there's still the age question. Messina says Biden put a lot of worries to rest with his State of the Union address delivered to the largest TV audience he's likely to see all year. He came out um, with energy, with focus, with a message, uh, and just reminded everyone of the Joe Biden we all know and love. Then a couple of weeks later, he pulled off a high-stakes secret trip to Kyiv, Ukraine. One year later, Kyiv stands and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. The Americans stands with you and the world stands with you. It was another show of vitality in the face of concern about Biden's age. He has been dismissed and discounted at every turn and still overperformed expectations. Liz Smith is a Democratic political consultant who worked for one of Biden's opponents in the 2020 presidential primary. And we saw a lot of the similar doubts uh, raised about him in 2020, that he was too old to run for president, that um, he wouldn't be Democratic, Democrat's strongest nominee, that he wouldn't be able to unify the party. And everyone was wrong. Being doubted and proving people wrong is a theme of Biden's long political career. Even with polls showing Democratic voters would welcome an alternative, the Democratic establishment has fallen in line. Smith and Messina say they doubt Biden will face any serious challenges for the nomination. Anderson says there's really only one thing that could stand in Biden's way. The only way that he does not stay the Democratic nominee for president through 2024 is if there is some kind of unfortunate concern with regards to his health or his family. As Biden has said, he is a believer in fate. And right now, the stars are aligned for him to sit back and watch the Republicans duke it out for a chance to challenge him. Tamara Keith, NPR News. 
Most states that ban abortion have exceptions for medical emergencies or for preserving the life of the mother. But since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last June, there have been many cases where doctors weren't sure how to apply those exceptions. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin is here to tell us about how this is playing out in Oklahoma. Selena, hi. Hi, Melissa. So Oklahoma is a Republican-controlled state. It's got a governor who is staunchly opposed to abortion rights. What is the law there now? Well, there are currently three overlapping abortion bans with different definitions and exceptions, so it gets pretty confusing. One law comes with felony charges and up to five years in prison for providers, so the stakes for interpreting the laws correctly are real for doctors and hospitals. And one of the big issues is how to understand the life exception. And walk us through that. What is the confusion there about how to interpret that? It kind of seems like a simple thing at first, but it's actually not. So let me give you an example. J.C. Staten is 25. She's a stay-at-home mom of three in central Oklahoma. In February, she learned she had a type of molar pregnancy in which some of the tissue was cancerous. Her OBGYN told her she could hemorrhage or even die. Which is a terrifying prospect. What happened next for J.C. Staten? Well, she had trouble getting care. The treatment for a patient in her condition is a dilation and curatage, or DNC, which is an abortion procedure that clears pregnancy tissue from the uterus. Her OBGYN would not give her that treatment. She was transferred to another hospital and another, and no one would provide the DNC. At one hospital, J.C. Staten said staff told her this. They said the best we can tell you to do is sit in the parking lot, and if anything else happens, we will be ready to help you. But we cannot touch you unless you are crashing in front of us or your blood pressure goes so high that you are fixing to have a heart attack. She ended up having to leave the state for treatment, which gives you a sense for how stuck Oklahoma providers are when it comes to navigating these medical exceptions. And Selena, do you have a sense of the bigger picture of how those policies are playing out for other patients around Oklahoma? Well, yeah, there's actually new research out today that gives a sense of that. So researchers surveyed hospitals in the state on their abortion policies using what's called a mystery shopper research methodology. So basically, several young women called 34 hospitals in Oklahoma with a script saying they were pregnant for the first time, trying to decide which Oklahoma hospital to go to for care, and wanted to understand the hospital's policies and processes for providing abortions if complications arose during the pregnancy. So they called 34 hospitals. What did they find? Well, basically, a lot of confusion. Most hospitals could not provide any information about the policies. Three said they would never provide an abortion in any circumstance. These researchers were also told some really concerning things. I talked to Dr. Michelle Heisler, professor at the University of Michigan and medical director of Physicians for Human Rights, who was one of the study's authors. In one of the hospitals, a person was trying to be reassuring, and she said, oh, well, you know, in the case of a medical emergency, we would try to use the woman's body as an incubator to just try to keep the pregnancy going as long as possible. The full findings were published today, along with a commentary in the Lancet Medical Journal. And Selena, any response from hospitals in Oklahoma about those findings? Well, the Oklahoma Hospital Association did not provide anyone for an interview. Oklahomans for Life did not respond to my request for comment. There's ongoing legislation and court cases in Oklahoma, but it is a very conservative state, so it's not likely there will be significant changes to abortion laws there anytime soon. That's NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. Selena, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. 400 years ago, what may be the most significant book in the English language first appeared in print. If we didn't have this book, 
you know, just that the implications of that are, are really substantial. That's Emma Smith of the University of Oxford. She's talking about William Shakespeare's first folio, a near complete collection of 36 of the Bard's plays published seven years after his death. If we didn't have this book, we wouldn't care about Shakespeare at all. Half of the plays would have just been lost. We wouldn't have Julius Caesar. We wouldn't have The Tempest. We wouldn't have Macbeth. Uh, we, and we wouldn't have all the kind of cultural significance that they have got. To commemorate the book's anniversary, a rare books dealer in London has collected a copy of the first folio, along with the second, third, and fourth editions of the book. Smith got a preview. I've never seen all those four 17th century books open in the same place at the same time. And that's saying something. She's a Shakespeare scholar. The bookseller, Palm Harrington, also tracked down a first edition of Shakespeare's poems. And he put the whole lot of five books up for sale at $10.5 million. The first folio is the priciest at $7.5 million. It's this very fresh and sort of vibrant copy. Um, It's very authentic. It's sort of it crackles as you open the paper. And he says that fresh condition is rare, especially for popular titles like Shakespeare's. Because it was read. It was read to death in a lot of cases. And they didn't have lighting. They used candles and candle wax strips on these books. Um, and so damage can happen. But don't even think about giving these books the white glove treatment. We do not use white gloves. They are nasty and evil and harm books. So we wash our hands and they're dry. And if you have clean, dry hand, you can handle these books. Now, if the mere thought of Shakespeare has you thinking, uh, no thanks, I'd rather not relive ninth grade English, the Bard's friends who assembled the first folio left some advice in the book's preface. Here's Emma Smith again. They say, read him, therefore, again and again. And then if you do not like him, surely you are in some manifest danger not to understand him. So kind of saying you can't not like this stuff. You can only not get it. That's that's the only way. The fourth folio has already sold for $235,000, the poems for 750000 But the first three folios should be on display later this week at the New York International Antiquarian Book Fair, if you want to catch a glimpse. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, an investigative report on the successes and failures of America's battle with COVID-19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Complex Stories. Working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com and Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. Stocks took a downturn today. The Dow lost about a full percent, S&P fell more than one and a half percent, and the Nasdaq lost the most, nearly two percent. Spirit Airlines is expanding operations at Logan Airport in Boston. The discount carrier is adding nonstop flights from Boston to five cities. Service to Charlotte and Dallas begins in June. Trips to Los Angeles start in July. Spirit will add flights to Houston and Phoenix in August. It's 419. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFS. Their active 360-degree approach combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com active360. And BG Catering Concepts, corporate and social event planning and catering for special occasions. bgcateringconcepts.com. 56 degrees now in the Boston area, cloudy, breezy, some sporadic showers through the evening hours. And then for the first part of the night tonight, down around 40 degrees tonight. Clouds lasting through the early morning tomorrow, then a sunny Wednesday, breezy, up around 54 degrees. For Thursday, some clouds gaining on the sun. Still some bright spots, though, holding to the mid-50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. When singer-songwriter Lucinda Williams was trying to get signed by a major record label, her iconic breakup song, Changed the Locks, was rejected by Los Angeles record executives as too country for rock. Then executives in Nashville passed on the song and Williams because, as they said, it was too rock for country. The back and forth shows the challenge Williams faced early in her career. Her music defied categorization. In the end, what kind of music Williams created didn't matter. Rough Trade Records signed the artist, and Change the Locks was part of Williams' first big commercial record. There were more albums, there was critical acclaim, and three Grammys. And now, at 70 years old, Williams is still writing songs and performing, despite suffering a stroke in 2020. Lucinda Williams has also written a memoir, and she's with me now to talk about it. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. I love your show. I listen to it all the time. Thank you for being here. Lucinda, I want to start by asking you about something that comes up in one of the first pages of your book. And it's a list of the places that you lived. And if I'm counting these correctly, that's 15 places by the time you were 20 years old. Why did you move around so much? Well, my dad was a college professor. So I was an academic brat. My dad would teach for a year or two at a certain college and then move on to another college. That experience of moving around so much, it made it into your music. Uh, There's a moment in the book where you talk about the first time your father heard you play the song Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. In the kitchen, the house of Macon, Loretta singing on the radio. Can you just tell us a little bit about that song and what that moment meant for you? Yeah, that song is, you have to imagine it's, Life as seen through a child's eyes, trying to get ready to leave to go somewhere and trying to find, you know, the keys and packing the suitcases and everything. The child in the back seat listening to voices in the front seat. Telephone poles 
I was playing at the Bluebird in Nashville, and my father was in the audience, and I performed the song, and it was the first time he'd heard it, and I went backstage afterwards, and he told me how sorry he was. And I said, Dad, what do you mean? And he said, well, that new song you wrote, he said, you're the child in the back seat. And until that moment, I hadn't realized that I was writing about myself. He had recognized that. So it's kind of a bittersweet moment. As a person who loves to write, I loved the way you described your writing process in this book and the idea that you put into my mind of you carrying this suitcase full of references and notes and snippets of ideas so that they're there at your fingertips anytime, ready to be deployed into a song. Do you still carry a briefcase like that? Yeah, well, I've got it at home right now. I had so many notes and miscellaneous pieces of paper with lines and everything on them that I finally decided to create these files for each separate song. So, like, I could pull out a file for a certain song that I wanted to work on some more. It just made it easier to access everything. I like, you know, pen and paper. Can you let us in on an example of one of the notes that we might find in there? Well, it might be a song that I started and haven't finished yet. You know, I've worked on songs sometimes for a few years off and on, like Drunken Angel. That one took a long time. The sun came up, it was another day, and the sun went down, you were blown away. What made it take so long? I mean, I was trying to describe this particular person. And the thing is, when I go in to write about someone like, you know, somebody who's maybe has a drinking problem and, you know, is somewhat self-destructive or something like that, as the writer, I have to be compassionate. I've got to put some of myself in there. I don't want to sound judgmental. That takes a lot of thought and a lot of work for that to come across. As we mentioned, you had a stroke back a few years ago. I'd like to ask you, how are you doing? How has recovery been going? Well, I told somebody the other day, recovery is a <laughs> Sorry, was, can you say words like that on the air? You know, we can bleep things. <laughs> Okay. You know, and I've had a lot of rehab, a lot of physical therapy, and I credit that with me getting back on my feet as soon as I did, because, I mean, I couldn't even walk at first. I literally would try to walk across the room and lose my balance and fall down. Mm. I had to practice with a cane, and they gave me a walker to use, and, you know, and then I had a wheelchair for a short amount of time, but I learned to walk. You know, that I learned pretty quickly because I didn't want to be dependent. So I got out of the wheelchair, I got off the cane, and I'm walking, but slowly, but, you know, not the way I used to. Has your recovery changed the way you write your music? Well, I haven't been able to play guitar, Mm -hmm. which has been a real drag. I'm hoping that'll come back too, just like my walking did. But I'm still doing it. I'm still writing and I'm still performing with my band. I just don't play. 
but they back me up and I sing. And my voice is still is fine. That hasn't been affected. I find myself writing in my head a lot. Hmm. I mean, you have had this incredible career and created so much beautiful music. Do you think about what might come next for you? Well, like I mentioned, you know, I'd love to be able to play guitar again like I was doing before. I mean, I would love to get back to the me that was before my stroke. You know, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but that's what I would like to see. I don't know what to, who knows what the future might bring. Lucinda Williams, her memoir, Don't Tell Anybody the Secrets I Told You, is out now. Lucinda, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. You're mine truth. Man of quit, man of hate, man of envy and doubt. You're man. All the money You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up on All Things Considered, lessons learned from the war on COVID. That's coming up in about six minutes. After that, the lonely parrots of video chats. Should be overcast overnight tonight, a little bit damp, scattered showers around, down about 40 degrees. Tomorrow making it back up to the mid-50s, a bit cooler than usual this time of year. Should be mainly sunny, though, and then for Thursday, still in the mid-50s with sunshine, but some clouds mixing in as well. 56 degrees under cloudy skies in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. News headlines are coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974, in Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, a standoff at the Bristol County Jail, hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage, and renewed questions about inmate living conditions. WBUR's Deb Becker joins us from the newsroom on the incident and what it says about new Bristol County Sheriff Paul Faroe's plans for change. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden says he's officially running for re-election four years to the day after he launched his 2020 campaign. Biden spoke today to a crowd of union supporters about his agenda to create good-paying union jobs and bring back manufacturing to help boost the middle class. I wouldn't be standing here. I wouldn't have been elected to the United States Senate in the state that was a right-to-work state initially were it not for American union labor. Biden announced earlier today via video casting this next run as a fight for personal freedoms, where he linked images of the riots at the U.S. Capitol with protests over the Supreme Court decision overturning abortion rights. Biden also accused far-right Republicans of trying to dictate health care decisions while making it harder for many people to vote. 
A new NPR PBS News uh, NewsHour Marist poll finds that former President Donald Trump has a stronghold on the Republican base. NPR's Domenico Montanaro says that points toward a potential rematch with President Biden. The survey of almost 1,300 people found that 71% of Republicans think Trump should be president again. And even if he's found guilty of a crime, almost two-thirds of Republicans still say they'd vote for him. It shows why Trump is considered the frontrunner for the GOP nomination once again. But there's a huge disconnect when taking voters of all parties into account. Overall, two-thirds of respondents say they do not want Trump to be president again. That includes a whopping 68% of independents. That all makes it hard to see how Trump loses the nomination, but shows he's got a lot of work to do to put together a winning coalition in a general election. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished broadly lower on Wall Street with the biggest drop in more than a month today. The Dow lost 344 points, down more than 1%. Tech-heavy Nasdaq down nearly 2 This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's a new chapter in the debate over the MCAS, that is the standardized test for Massachusetts school students. A group is formed to defend the exam against critics who say the test is too high stakes and slanted to favor whiter and wealthier communities. WBUR's Max Larkin has more. The new group of education reform advocates and educators is rallying around the test. Voices for Academic Equity sees room for improvement, like offering the MCAS in multiple languages and using AI to grade it more quickly. But group member Mary Tamer says the test still has an important role to play. We have no other way of knowing exactly how every child is doing in the classroom. There is a reason for us to know if we are falling short on our promise. State lawmakers are considering a bill that would lower the stakes of the MCAS, for example, ending its use as a high school graduation requirement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The Food and Drug Administration has given accelerated approval to a new drug made by a Cambridge tech company to treat a rare form of ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. However, the FDA is also calling on Biogen to conduct further research to confirm the drug's benefits. The injectable drug is the first medication to treat an inherited form of ALS that affects fewer than 500 people in the U.S. The progressive disease destroys nerve cells that are needed for basic functions, such as walking, talking, and swallowing. Sales of instant scratch tickets helped to boost the state lottery sales last month. Massachusetts Lottery said today it sold more than $366 million in instant tickets last month. Scratch ticket sales were up nearly 2% this year compared to last. The lottery's net benefit or net profit is up 8% over last year. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Grogan and Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, whose spring auction weekend is May 6th and 7th. Learn more at groganco.com. Clouds thickening over the next several hours. Chance of light rain should fall to about 40 overnight. Tomorrow we could wake up to clouds, then sunshine breaks through. Should get back to the mid-50s. Partly sunny on Thursday, stuck in the mid-50s, which is where it is now. 54 degrees at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. 
Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The United States is moving on from COVID. At least the federal government is. Two weeks ago, President Biden officially ended the national emergency that was declared during the pandemic. After previous national emergencies, Congress has created independent commissions to investigate, issue a report on lessons learned. The 9-11 Commission, for example. That hasn't happened for COVID. The closest we have is a report out today by the nonpartisan COVID crisis group. It's titled Lessons from the COVID War. Philip Zelico is the group's director and the former executive director of the 9-11 Commission. I spoke with him today about the report's key findings. The key to this crisis and the key to what went wrong was we weren't really ready to meet an emergency. We had the best science. We were willing to spend the most money. That wasn't the problem. The problem was in knowing what to do and being ready to do it. I think the reason we wrote the report was so that people would actually have a better idea of what you really need to do in an emergency like this. And I think anyone reading this report will just say to themselves, oh, I I think I understand this now. The report runs hundreds of pages, so we're not going to be able to get at every choice and every decision that officials and leaders were grappling with. But I want to focus on one of them, which was Operation Warp Speed, because you all spent a lot of time on this. This was the Trump administration program to develop a vaccine and and fast, as the name suggests. My read is that y'all concluded whatever other mistakes the Trump administration made during the pandemic, Operation Warp Speed, getting a vaccine, this was a success. It was a success. Actually, President Trump himself had almost nothing to do with it. I think we have the best account of the origins of Warp Speed that's available in print right now. And we kind of explain what it is about it that actually worked and also what about it really didn't work. What about the politics of it? I remember interviewing the chief scientific advisor to Operation Warp Speed, Monsef Slowey. Dr. Slowey? Yes, Dr. Slowey. Back in 2020, there were all kinds of questions over whether then-President Trump was rushing to get a vaccine, rushing to get good news out there and announce it. You know, hallelujah, we're saved, like right before the election in 2020. Did you find politics were in play? Well, politics are always in play when you're developing health decisions for hundreds of millions of people. And politics were in play here too. Actually, the remarkable thing about warp speed was that it was relatively insulated from the cronyism and chaos that characterized so much of the Trump administration. It was insulated partly because a lot of it was lodged in the Department of Defense. And actually, we give some credit to the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who helped to insulate the program's management from some of his colleagues in the administration who would have interfered more with it. I'm thinking about how uh, top health officials, public health officials, talked about the vaccine, how they messaged and communicated. What lessons did you take away from that that we might apply next time? Well, the communication was terrible. 
Um, <laughs> if, I make, if I may be blunt. For example, Operation Warp Speed did such a very good job on manufacturing and distribution. It never created a campaign to persuade people to use the vaccines. And we also discovered that where those campaigns worked, and some of them did, it wasn't because of where you get a bunch of people in Washington cutting public service announcements, telling people what to do. What the persuasive efforts that worked, and people did some of this, is where you actually reached out to uh, leaders in local communities, whether it was a nonprofit efforts to work through the American Farm Bureau Federation and rural communities, or to work through urban communities, through churches or other community leaders. And actually, some of those efforts worked quite well in persuading people to use the vaccine. But in general, at a national level, the communication efforts were poor, and and actually those problems extended on into the Biden administration as well. Hmm. So I hear you saying, you know, there are lessons learned. I hear you saying we need to do this better next time. How are you thinking about getting traction for this report? This is a long and dense report on a serious subject that a lot of people, frankly, are tired of thinking about. The main way you get action, actually, is for people to begin to see what can be done. Mm-hmm. Once they see what preparedness really looks like and what it means, then they begin to see, ah, this isn't hopeless. It's actually possible to do stuff here. One of the members of our group told me last week, she was rereading the report, and she said rereading it actually made her feel empowered because it's impossible to read through this and not get a sense of, oh, I, I see what can be done. That is Philip Zelico, professor of history at the University of Virginia, former executive director of the 9-11 Commission, and now with the COVID Crisis Group. Thanks so much for sharing this new report with us. We appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Mary Louise. Once upon a time, Polly just wanted a cracker. (laughs) Nowadays, Polly might want a Zoom call. Eleanor, which friend would you like to call? Eleanor is one of 18 parrots in a recent study that asked whether video calls could help pet parrots fulfill their social needs. You want to call Rosie? Parrots are incredibly socially complex creatures. They surpass six- and seven-year-old children in puzzle tasks and memory skills. That is Jennifer Kuna of Northeastern University. She co-authored the study. They have high mental needs that aren't always catered to very well in companion situations. And pet birds of a feather shouldn't always flock together, according to another lead researcher, Ilyana Hersky-Douglas from the University of Glasgow. A very high percentage of them have diseases which can be transferred when in-person interaction takes place. So Hersky-Douglas and Kuna got together with two other researchers to see if parrots in captivity could find companionship through video calls on Facebook Messenger. We taught them first to ring a bell, then the tablet would be presented. One of two images of fellow parrots would appear on a phone or tablet, and using their beaks or tongues, the parrots would choose. Who would you like to call this time? To see how much the parrots actually wanted to spend time on video chats, researchers measured engagement and agency. So how frequently they rang other parrots when the system was available, and then how quickly they used the system. They were prepared to see negative reactions from the birds, like aggression. But, you know, instead... We saw a lot of social behaviors that you would see potentially between birds that were together or in the wild. So mirroring behaviors where they might move in the same kind of way, dancing, singing together. They really seem to, as one owner said, like come alive during the calls. 
the fact that they remember which of the birds is their friends and they tend to choose the same bird. I mean, that suggests a lot in terms of long-term social memory. That's parrot cognition expert Irene Pepperberg of Harvard University, who consulted on the study. The lead researchers concluded that video calling technology could reproduce some of the social benefits of living in a flock, even between parrot species. And Jennifer Kuna says some of the birds still ask to chat with their pals. Some of the birds continue to call each other. So I think that there's a lot of long-term potential for these kinds of relationships. In other words, maybe what Polly wants is a lasting friendship, even through a screen. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Israel is observing its 75th Independence Day against a politically charged backdrop. In recent months, tens of thousands of Israelis have protested the new far-right government and its attempt to weaken the independence of Israel's judiciary. Here in the U.S., some Jewish communities are figuring out what it means to support Israel at a time like this. Dina Pritchup reports. Every Sabbath, after the Torah is read at the Park Avenue Synagogue, the congregation offers a prayer for the state of Israel. It's a prayer written just after Israel's founding that synagogues around the country have been reciting for decades for the safety and security of the country and the wisdom of its leaders. I can't imagine a Jewish identity without Israel at its core. Elliot Cosgrove is the congregation's rabbi. My Judaism has a whole series of values. To know the heart of the stranger, that each and every person is created equally in the divine image. And he says what's happening in Israel right now does not reflect those values. Cosgrove's congregation is not activist or anti-establishment. This is the Park Avenue synagogue. But while there are, of course, a range of opinions about Israel, even moderate mainstream Jews, those who used to see criticizing Israel as a form of anti-Semitism, are starting to speak out. I think this is a moment. The democratic part of that sacred relationship, Jewish and democratic, seems to be on the altar. So for most of Israel's history, the idea of Israel being a liberal, humanistic country, at least in principle, was largely true. That's not true anymore. Shaul Magid teaches Jewish studies at Dartmouth College. Israel is a different country than it was 25, 30, 40 years ago. And I don't think it's going to go back to that. This is a country that had a labor government until the late 70s. But as the electorate becomes more religious, more conservative, Magid says... That's a thing of the past. I think one of the main difficulties for American pro-Israel Jews, most of whom are liberal, is that Israel has become an illiberal country, and openly so, and in, in a way that it's almost impossible to deny. So what does liberal Zionism do when Israel is seen as an illiberal country? They take to the streets. They keep offering prayers. And in some congregations, they change them. Jeremy Kalmanovsky is the rabbi at New York's Anshe Chesed Synagogue. I do not believe that the terms, Shlach or Mitcha, God send your illumination and your truth, belongs in the same sentence with ministers who have taken such a overtly racist and ultra-nationalist and aggressive tack. 
These are politicians who have called for an annexation of the West Bank, supported attacking a Palestinian village, advocated for full immunity for all soldiers. And so, even before the judicial overhaul, Kalmanovsky's congregation dropped the prayer for Israel and its leadership in favor of a biblical psalm. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be at peace. I'm still Zionist. I still love and support Israel. But I am making a liturgical protest from a community that needs to say something in response to a a very dangerous turn in the government. Although they have made different liturgical choices, Rabbi Kalmanovsky and Park Avenue's Rabbi Cosgrove both point out that the Israeli national anthem is called Hatikva, the hope. And they, like many American Jews, hope for an Israel they can fully support. Although on the eve of Israel's 75th birthday, many are finding that hope a little hard to hold. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchett. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on All Things Considered, the music world. What's the difference between drawing inspiration from something and stealing it? We'll hear about a major musical copyright trial that began this week. And in about 15 minutes, we'll remember the singer, actor, and human rights activist who broke racial barriers, Harry Belafonte, who died today at 96. It's 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Long Hill in Beverly, hosting world-renowned garden experts in a spring garden symposium, May 6th and 7th. More at thetrustees.org slash longhillsymposium. The Celtics are looking to close out their playoff series with the Hawks tonight at the TD Garden. Boston leads Atlanta three games to one in the best-of-seven series. A win tonight would push the Celts into the second round of the Eastern Conference playoffs against the Philadelphia 76ers. Tip-off tonight is 7.30. And tonight at Fenway, the Red Sox try to keep Baltimore at bay after the Orioles took game one of their series. The Sox go with Corey Kluber tonight against Kyle Bradish for Baltimore, 6.35 start time. WBUR supporters include Museum of Science, Maneuver Through Mind-Bending Illusions, 3D Puzzles and Kinetic Play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, coming soon, mos.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me, no problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Melissa Block. What's the difference between musical inspiration and intellectual theft? That's the question at the heart of a big copyright trial that began this week in a federal court in Manhattan. Let's Get It On was performed by Marvin Gaye, but it was co-written by Ed Townsend. And Ed Townsend's heirs have accused another musician of writing a song that copies Let's Get It On. That's Thinking Out Loud by the British musician Ed Sheeran. Adrian Ma and Waylon Wong from our daily economics show The Indicator from Planet Money explain why this case of Ed v. Ed should matter to music lovers everywhere. When she was just a kid, Jennifer Jenkins thought she might grow up to be a musician. I had dreams of being a rock star. I played the piano, played the violin, played the flute. 
uh, was not terribly good at any of them. Jennifer became a law professor, but she is still a music nerd. She specializes in music copyright law, and she still plays piano. And so Jennifer seemed like the perfect person to explain how music copyright infringement cases, like the case of the two Eds, get decided. She says to understand this case, you have to go back to 1946 to a case called Arnstein versus Porter. Now, the Porter was Cole Porter, famous composer of various show tunes and jazz standards like Night and Day. Hey. Night and day. Oh, yeah, I love some Ella Fitzgerald. So, Cole Porter, a household name. Ira Arnstein, on the other hand. He was an unsuccessful songwriter. And he had what one commentator called persecution mania. Um, He was just completely convinced that people were stealing his music, even though they probably weren't. And so if you look through the history of music copyright cases, you'll see all these cases called Arnstein versus this and Arnstein versus that. Most of Arnstein's lawsuits got tossed out as baseless, but his lawsuit against Cole Porter would go down in legal history because in that case, the court came up with this two-part test for determining music copyright claims. The first question the jury would have to decide are the similarities between these two songs, are they a complete coincidence? Or is there enough to justify an inference that copying occurred? If a defendant never heard the plaintiff's song, then any similarity between the two is just a coincidence. And that's a defense in a copyright case. Though probably not in Ed Sheeran's case. And not just because Let's Get It On is like a super duper famous song. But also because uh, during this concert several years ago, Ed Sheeran was in the middle of playing his song Thinking Out Loud and then briefly switched into... So it can't be like, Marvin Gaye never heard of him. Right. He obviously maintains that there was no copying going on. But hypothetically, if a jury were to decide there was some copying happening, there is a second question they'd have to answer as part of the Arnstein test. And that is, did this copying somehow cross a line? You know, was this inspiration or theft? Is it benign, okay appropriation? Or is it unlawful appropriation? Right, like did one song copy really big chunks from another, or did it maybe just copy a little bit, but that little bit was like the best, most original part of the song? So when you take all this together, that is the test that courts still use in music copyright cases today. Part one, coincidence or copying. Part two, inspiration or theft. And if you're thinking out loud, (laughs) this seems very subjective. Jennifer says you are exactly right. The weird thing in music cases is there's often no authoritative text that tells us what we're even talking about, what the music even is. Typically, the judges or the jurors don't have musical backgrounds. And so who do they rely on to tell them what we're even talking about? That's the forensic musicologist. The forensic musicologist. Aside from the musicians in the cases, forensic musicologists are low-key the stars of any music copyright trial. And their title might conjure images of, like, a CSI detective dusting for fingerprints and collecting DNA. And it turns out it's kind of like that. These forensic musicologists are experts in music theory who can break down and analyze every little piece of a song. In the case of the two Eds, both sides have their own forensic musicologists. It's probably important to mention here that forensic musicology is not a precise science. And for that reason, Jennifer says the arguments that get made in these cases can get a little fudgy. 
Like, for example, with Let's Get It On and Thinking Out Loud, they may have different melodies and lyrics and instrumentation, but the plaintiff nevertheless argues that these songs share a key similarity. So in the background of Let's Get It On is this chord progression. Okay, here's what's going on in Ed Sheeran. That's what this case is about. That's I'm wait, serious. Wait. So I just I almost I'm totally serious. <laughs> I went that happened so fast I almost missed it. So that's the main argument in this case is that. And here's the thing, chord progressions, a lilting rhythm, these are just basic musical building blocks. I mean, there are only 12 notes in the Western musical scale, you know, only so many of those combinations of them that people actually want to hear. And yet that hasn't stopped plaintiffs in recent years from claiming ownership seemingly over basic musical bits. Like a few years ago, you may have heard of the case involving a song called Blurred Lines. Everybody get up. Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams were accused of copying another Marvin Gaye song, Got to Give It Up. In that case, the plaintiff argued that, look, both songs have this, like, funky bass line and this cowbell part, and those are all evidence of copying. And the jury agreed, which promptly freaked out the music industry and had songwriters and record companies looking over their shoulder for the next few years. Some even took out insurance policies and hired forensic musicologists to pre-vet their songs. So what does this all mean for the case of the two Eds? I'm not like weeping tears for Ed Sheeran either way. That's not what this is about, right? This is about, this is about all musicians. This is about the musical commons. And this is about whether anyone, including the next Ed Townsend and the next Marvin Gaye, can use these basic building blocks when writing their own songs. If they can't, then the songwriter's toolkit has been severely diminished, and that's bad for music. Regardless of her views on the case, Jennifer says she really has no idea who will win. She says juries can be unpredictable, and this area of law is kind of blurred. Adrian Ma. Waylon Wong, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. 
and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Check out a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. Violation explores America's opaque parole system through a decades-old murder case. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. Pretty cloudy out there now, breezy, some sporadic showers through the evening, and for the first part of the night tonight, about 40 degrees. And for tomorrow, sunny, breezy, up around 54 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFS. Their active 360-degree approach combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com active360. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Singer, actor, and human rights activist Harry Belafonte balanced his activism with his artistry. He said he learned some lifelong lessons from his mother. She was tenacious about her dignity not being crushed. And one day she said to me, don't ever let injustice go by unchallenged. Remembering Belafonte, coming up on All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a civil trial against former President Donald Trump begins in Manhattan. Vice columnist E. Jean Carroll accuses Trump of raping her in the 1990s. And an Ashland woman and her 18-month-old daughter have escaped the fighting in Sudan. Her sister-in-law awaits their return to Massachusetts. We are so relieved that Trillian and Alma are out of Khartoum and across the border of Sudan. We're still very nervous for her because we understand that she still has a lot of travel ahead of her. That story and much more is still ahead. It's 5.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Joe Biden made it official today, Biden announcing in a video his intentions to seek a second term and potentially go up against the man he defeated last time, former Republican President Donald Trump. Every generation of Americans has faced a moment when they have to defend democracy. Stand up for our personal freedom. Stand up for the right to vote and our civil rights. Top Democrats have remained solidly united behind Biden, despite concerns on the part of some voters about his age. Biden is 80 now and faces the prospect of another four years in the White House starting in 2024. Biden continues to say he is up for the job. Trump, who is 76, would also be among the oldest candidates in U.S. history. Ronald Reagan left office at the age of 78. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is preparing to bring his debt ceiling blueprint up for a vote as early as tomorrow. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports McCarthy has been working to gain support for the plan among members of the caucus since he released it last week. The Republican proposal to raise the borrowing limit is contingent on deep cuts in government spending, something that Democrats, including President Biden, have repeatedly pushed back against. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the plan would cut the American economy off at the knees. In a new analysis, Moody's Analytics finds that the Speaker's legislation would increase the odds of a recession, cost 780,000 jobs, increase the unemployment rate. Speaker McCarthy can only afford to lose four Republican votes if he's to pass the bill along party lines in the House. The White House has repeatedly said that a strings-attached debt ceiling bill is a non-starter. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. McDonald's and General Motors both posted profits in the first three months of this year, but as NPR Scott Horsley reports, that did not stop the two companies from announcing job cuts. Many customers are still gobbling up Big Macs and fries despite higher prices. McDonald's says sales from existing restaurants were up more than 12 percent in the first quarter compared to a year ago. Despite that strong performance, McDonald's laid off hundreds of corporate employees this spring and set aside $180 million for several payments. In other drive-through news, General Motors says it expects continued strong demand for cars and trucks this year after a 19 percent jump in first quarter profits. GM also offered buyouts to about 3,000 white-collar workers. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The federal government is saying today it will not hesitate to crack down on harmful business practices associated with artificial intelligence. Head of the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Kahn, also said today with giant companies like Google and Microsoft selling advanced AI tools, there's a possibility the government watchdog group could wield its antitrust authority. A major down day on Wall Street. The Dow fell 344 points. The Nasdaq dropped 238 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. An Ashland woman, Trillian Clifford, and her 18-month-old daughter, Alma, are on their way home from Sudan. The two had been taking shelter in their apartment in the capital city of Khartoum since fighting broke out in the country more than a week ago. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has the story. Clifford has been in Khartoum since the fall when she took a teaching job at an international school. As the violence intensified, her family has been working around the clock to get her and Alma home. Clifford's sister-in-law, Rebecca Winter, says the pair crossed Sudan's border today. Winter says they still have a two- or three-day journey before they can board a plane to Massachusetts. Everything at the border is chaotic right now, so just getting through the border took a very long time. And now it's mostly, I believe, land travel until they get to a destination where they can get on a plane. Winter says Senator Elizabeth Warren and Governor Moore Healy helped orchestrate the evacuation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Boston is naming school a school after the late civil rights icon Mel King. Tomorrow, the city will rename the McKinley Special Education Schools. The new name is the Melvin H. King South End Academy. The longtime South End resident died last month. He was 94. Among the causes he championed was equal access to education. King was also the first black candidate to make it to the final round of the mayoral election in Boston. He lost to Ray Flynn. The federal government is taking another step toward approving offshore wind farms in the Gulf of Maine. Today, I identified nearly 10 million acres off the coast of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine as a possible area for development. Starting tomorrow, the Federal Bureau of Ocean Energy Management will give the public 45 days to weigh in on where potential farms in that zone should go. And the new chair of the Massachusetts Democratic Party says he will follow in the footsteps of former chair Gus Bickford. Steve Kerrigan of Lancaster was elected the new state Democratic Party chair last night. Kerrigan says he wants to make the party strong and ensure candidates have the resources they need. There's room for engagement at all levels with young voters and seniors, with organized labor and with communities of color or urban communities, etc., to engage them in what it means to be a Democrat. Kerrigan says first on the party's agenda is to ensure the state's all-Democratic congressional delegation is re-elected in 2024. In the forecast, 54 degrees in the Boston area. Some passing showers this evening and overnight tonight, down around 40 overnight. For tomorrow, partly to mostly sunny skies. Highs back in the mid-50s. 54 degrees in Boston at 5.07.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Melissa Block in Washington. We learned today that the singer, actor, and human rights activist Harry Belafonte died this morning at his home in New York City. The cause of death was congestive heart failure. According to a family representative, he was 96 years old. Harry Belafonte broke racial barriers. He balanced his activism with his artistry in ways that made people around the world listen. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has this appreciation. Style, class, and charisma. That was Harry Belafonte. In the 1950s, his recordings for RCA Victor set off a calypso craze. Work all night and a drink a rum. With his good looks and his shirt unbuttoned to his chest, audiences, black and white, adored Belafonte at a time when most of America was still segregated. He was born in Harlem. His parents were from the Caribbean. His mother, a domestic worker, took him back to her native Jamaica, where he absorbed the island's culture. In 2011, he told NPR the Banana Boat song was inspired by the vendors he heard singing in the streets. The song is a work song. It's about men who sweat all day long and they are underpaid and uh, they're begging for the tally man to come and give them an honest count. Count the bananas that I've picked so I can be paid. When people sing and delight and dance and, and love it, they don't really understand unless they study the song. That they're singing a work song, that's a song of rebellion. And that song of rebellion was a smash. The album Calypso held a spot at the top of Billboard's album charts for several weeks in 1956. Years earlier, Harry Belafonte dropped out of high school and joined the Navy. After serving in World War II, he was working as a janitor's assistant when someone gave him tickets to a performance at the American Negro Theater. He was riveted. He started training there alongside Sidney Poitier and Ruby Dee. He started singing in clubs. Pretty soon, he had a recording contract. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body liner. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake it all the time. In 1954, he won a Tony Award for acting in a musical called John Murray Anderson's Almanac. He starred in movies and appeared on TV variety shows. In 1959, he was given a one-hour show on CBS, The Revlon Review. Tonight with Belafonte had dance numbers, folk songs, and both black and white performers. The program won an Emmy Award, the first for an African-American. Revlon asked him for more shows. According to Belafonte, Southern CBS stations complained about its integrated cast. In interviews, he said he was asked to make it all black. He says he refused and left the show. Belafonte was one of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s most trusted friends. In 1963, he helped organize the Freedom March on Washington, where King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. 
Clarence Jones, who helped draft the speech, told WHYY's Fresh Air that it was Belafonte who explained to them how to use the power of television. He said, you have to look at this as a media event, not just as a march. And so, for example, uh, Harry was uh, responsible for assembling what was called the celebrity delegation, a lot of uh, celebrities from Hollywood and performing artists. And he was very firm that they should sit in a certain strategic part on this podium because he knew that the television cameras would pan to them, would look to them. And so he wanted to be sure that they were strategically situated so that in looking at the uh, the celebrities, they'd also see a picture of the march and the other uh, performers. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. When Dr. King was held in a Birmingham jail, Harry Belafonte raised money to bail him out. Coretta Scott King wrote in her autobiography, Whenever we got into trouble or when tragedy struck, Harry has always come to our aid, his generous heart wide open. This is Belafonte at a 1966 benefit concert for Dr. King. Everybody, Matilda, sing the chorus. Matilda, sing the music. Matilda, take me money and run Including the audience, Matilda. Everybody, Matilda. Just the audience. Throughout his career, Belafonte received numerous honors for his humanitarian work and the arts. He helped organize Nelson Mandela's first trip to the U.S. after he was released from prison. He was also an outspoken critic of people in power, including President Obama, who he once chastised for not showing enough concern for the poor. He singled out African-American artists Jay-Z and Beyonce, telling an interviewer they've turned their back on social responsibility. Jay-Z used his next album to respond. Uh, I'm just trying to find common ground for Mr. Belafonte come and chop it down. Mr. Dayo, made you fail. Respect these youngest boys, my time now. The two men eventually made up. Harry Belafonte was an activist well into his 90s. He told NPR that was something he learned from his mother. She was tenacious about her dignity not being crushed. And one day she said to me, she was talking about coming back from a day when she couldn't find work, fighting back tears, she said, don't ever let injustice go by unchallenged. As his best friend Sidney Poitier once put it, Harry Belafonte always raised his voice against the dark. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is aiming to hold a vote as early as this week on a proposal that would lift the nation's credit limit for one year. In exchange, he is asking for spending cuts and Republican policy changes to federal assistance programs like food stamps. But the path to this proposal actually becoming law is 
really steep. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo is here to explain. Hi, Jimena. Hey there. So who exactly would be affected by these changes that Speaker McCarthy's proposing to food stamps? Mm -hmm. Well, to start, 41 million people receive food stamps. And if these changes were to be enacted, older people who now qualify for food stamps would be affected. So this first provision that we're talking about is the McCar- in the McCarthy bill um, that was unveiled last week would raise the age limit on those subject to work requirement tracking. Currently, adults ages 18 to the day they turn 50 who do not have children and are considered, quote, capable, mm-hmm. have to show that they're working 20 hours a week in order to get food stamps. If they stop work or don't work enough hours for three consecutive months, then they lose the benefit. McCarthy effectively wants to raise that raise that age limit to 55, increasing the number of people subject to the work requirement. The second provision that is related deals with food stamp changes and the degree to which states can use discretionary exemptions to protect people from this time limit. Now, we should note that McCarthy is still trying to get members of his own conference to support his bill, and he could make changes to any of the policy before it comes to the floor for a vote. And President Biden has also threatened to veto the bill. And I understand that it's not only Democrats who are concerned, but also nutrition advocates, right? Like, tell us more about that. Yeah, nutrition advocates, Democrats, including the president himself, largely oppose this proposal because they're arguing that it would take people off of the program without doing anything to increase their chances of getting a job. Here's Ellen Vollinger, of SNAP, the SNAP director for the Food Research and Action Center. It's a strategy that is only certain to take food away from people. It is not going to improve their employability or their prospects in the labor market. Vollinger argues that often the food benefit is being given because a person is not able to make enough money on their own to sustain themselves. And especially for those ages 50 to 55, a three-month time limit to find a job can be stringent. One would expect also that as um, you're looking in your 50s, that there are greater labor market barriers. It's not It's not uncommon to hear about whether it's age discrimination or people who have had a career doing certain things all of a sudden when that career ends and having to shift to something else and come up with a different skill set. So the job search can can take longer uh, for people. And this is not a new debate, right? Republicans have long wanted to limit the amount of people who are on what they consider welfare programs. In fact, Republican lawmakers were already eyeing making changes to work requirements in the 2023 Farm Bill negotiations that are currently also being discussed. Right. Okay. so this Farm Bill that will be taken up soon by Congress for a vote. A majority of the funding in there does go to food stamps, right? Mm-hmm. So so what are Republicans saying about that as those negotiations are also ramping up? Right. The Farm Bill is up for renewal this year. And it's this once every five years bill that does govern the rules of food stamps. So who qualifies, who doesn't, who's in, who's out. And some Republicans have already come out in favor of more strict work requirements. Senate Agriculture Ranking Member John Bozeman of Arkansas says he wants to see work requirements handled in the debt limit, however, instead of the farm bill. So that is a you know integral part of their debt limit discussion. So I think the reality is is that uh, that will be worked out or, or thought during that during that process. But he does support McCarthy's idea of raising the age limit. Now, we have to keep in mind that the specific bill is unlikely to pass, but the idea could find a home in other legislation. That is NPR's Jimena Bustillo. Thank you, Jimena. Thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBR is All Things Considered. Some in Pakistan say with economic and political turmoil, conditions might be ripe for a coup. That story and much more still ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at cambridgenaturals.com. A downturn for stocks today on Wall Street. The Dow left about a full, lost about a full percent. S&P fell more than one and a half percent, and the Nasdaq lost the most, nearly two percent. New data show Boston, Cambridge, and Newton led the state in job growth between February and March. The total number of jobs in the area rose by one percent over the last year. Cape Cod and the North Shore had the largest job gains in the state. Marketplace has business news coming up at six thirty. It's now five nineteen. WBUR supporters include Waterstone, a new luxury independent and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington. WaterstoneLexington.com. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, you can do the same thing now with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with a new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store. In the forecast, generally cloudy skies into the night tonight. Some showers as well, down around 40 degrees overnight. Not a lot of change for tomorrow. Isolated showers, especially in the afternoon, partly to mostly sunny skies. And then Thursday, about equal on the sunshine and clouds. Showers possible again, still in the mid-50s. This is WBUR in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Melissa Block. Back in 2017, Jean Twenge started a firestorm in the field of psychology. Twenge studies health metrics across generations in America. When she looked at data for the Gen Z generation, who are now teenagers and young adults, she saw signs of a mental health crisis on the horizon. Rates of depression, anxiety, and loneliness were rising quickly. She had a hypothesis about the cause— smartphones and social media. Smartphones were used by the majority of Americans around 2012, and that's the same time loneliness increases. That's very suspicious. That's Twenge speaking on this program back in 2017. At the time, many of her colleagues didn't agree with her. They thought she had way too little data to make such claims and that she was unnecessarily causing a panic. Now, six years later, Twangy is back with a new book. As NPR's Michaeline Dukleff reports, science is finally catching up with her. Twangy's new book is called Generations. In it, she analyzes the mental health of five generations going all the way back to 1925. She shows quite clearly that in the past decade for Gen Z, the way teens spend their time outside of school has fundamentally changed. Take, for instance, hanging out with friends face-to-face. For 30 years, the time that teens spent socializing this way stayed pretty steady. But then in 2010, it nosedived. It's just like a black diamond ski slope, just straight down these really, really big changes. At the same time, social media use began to soar. 
A poll from the Pew Research Center finds that about 95% of teens now use some social media, and about a third say they use it constantly. And this is not a small number of people either. In the most recent data, 22% of 10th grade girls spend seven or more hours a day on social media. That's like they're not doing anything else besides going to school, right? Yep, that's correct. Not surprisingly, with all this screen time, Twenge finds that teens are getting much less sleep than they did a decade ago. Today, nearly half of high school seniors sleep less than seven hours a night. Kids in that age group are supposed to be getting nine hours a night. And this is a really serious problem. Sleep is absolutely crucial for physical health and for mental health. Not getting enough sleep is a major risk factor for anxiety and depression and self-harm. And unfortunately, all those mental health problems have continued to increase. Across the board, since 2010, there have been increases in anxiety, depression, loneliness. Um, and it's not just symptoms, it's also behaviors. Things like emergency room visits for self-harm, for suicide attempts, and completed suicides. All of those increased for teens all of these changes coincide with what may be the most rapid uptake in a new technology in human history, the uptake of smartphones and social media. Twenge has hypothesized for years now that they're connected. Chris Saeed is a data scientist with a PhD in psychology from Princeton. He has also worked at Facebook and Twitter and agrees that the timing is hard to ignore. Social media was just like a nuclear bomb on teen social life. I don't think there's anything in recent memory or even distant history that has changed the way that teens socialize as much as social media. But the timing doesn't answer the critical question. Does social media cause teens to become depressed? Scientists have published many studies addressing this question, but Saeed says, here's the thing people don't realize. In these studies, they haven't been using or really even had the proper tools to answer the question. So the findings have been all over the place, murky, noisy, inconclusive, and confusing. This is a very hard problem to study. And when you use tools that can't fully answer the question, you're going to get weak answers. So I, I think that's one reason why really strong evidence didn't show up in the data, at least early on. But now, scientists have better tools. Over the past few years, several high-quality studies have come out that can directly test whether or not social media causes depression. And the picture is getting clearer. Matthew Jensko is an economist at Stanford University. He says the best study just came out last November. It's from scientists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I really love that paper, and I think that paper is probably the most convincing thing I have seen. In the study, researchers took advantage of what was really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, the rollout of Facebook on college campuses way back in 2004 to 2006. When Facebook was introduced, it exploded so quickly. You know, everybody on campus had it in, in a very short period of time. But not every campus got Facebook at the same time. The rollout was staggered. And this staggered rollout is experimental gold. It allowed scientists to measure how the mental health of students changed on a campus as many students started using social media. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of students on over 300 campuses. You're looking at the impact of Facebook being introduced to an entire university. The researchers could also track students' mental health because at the time, colleges were administering a national survey about mental health with questions about concrete behaviors. Things like 
visits to the university health system for mental health and medications and things like that. What they found was almost immediately after Facebook arrives, there's an uptick in many mental health issues like depression and anxiety. The researchers estimate that Facebook caused about 2% of college students to become depressed. That would mean more than 300,000 more young adults suffering from depression. I think that shows clear effects. It's really credible. Of course, there are limitations. For starters, it's Facebook, which teens are using less and less. And it's a very early version of Facebook. There was no newsfeed or like button. So the version wasn't as potent as social media now. But other recent studies support these findings, including one led by Jensko. In that study, his team paid adults to quit Facebook for four weeks, and then they measured people's mental health changes. Across the board, people felt better on average after a break from Facebook. You see higher happiness, life satisfaction, lower depression, lower anxiety, and maybe a little bit lower loneliness. Jensko says there's still a lot to learn about social media and the mental health of teens, but a few ideas are really crystallizing. In particular, social media won't hurt everyone. Recent data suggests younger teens and preteens might be the most vulnerable to it. And while social media isn't the only cause of mental health problems in teens today, it is a cause. And it's something society, communities, parents, and teens themselves should take seriously and be extremely careful with. Michaeline Ducleff, NPR News. And Michaeline will be reporting more on the harmful effects of social media in an upcoming series of stories called Living Better. She'll look at what types of social media are most harmful, who is more at risk, and what people can do to protect themselves. And in the meantime, Elsa, are you ready for a little moment of joy? Oh, please, okay, yes. Okay, here we go. You're going to sing with me? Working nine to <laughs> Oh, my God, Dolly! you got to talk to Dolly. Dolly Parton, elsewhere in the program. Elsa, we talked to her about her new kid's book. It's all about standing up to bullies. It's about a dog named Billy, based on her actual god dog. And I said, I have to be his his extra mama or he has to be my god dog. So I just claimed him and he just took to me right away. So a conversation with Dolly Parton elsewhere in the program. Love it. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. And I better quit while I'm still behind. <laughs> what comes to mind when you hear the name Michael Jackson? He's so embedded in the fabric of my childhood, growing up in Harlem, listening to him with my cousins. But then it's not that simple. I came to see him in many ways as this sort of heartbreaking, tragic figure and someone who may well have done awful things to others. Unpacking Michael Jackson's complicated legacy, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. This is WBUR. Should be overcast tonight. Maybe a little damp, scattered showers, about 40 degrees. Tomorrow, making it back up to the mid-50s. Cooler than usual for this time of year. Should be a mainly sunny day. Thursday, still in the mid-50s with clouds and sunshine both. It's 530. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru. Introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, 
A standoff at the Bristol County Jail, hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage, and renewed questions about inmate living conditions. WBUR's Deb Becker joins us from the newsroom on the incident and what it says about new Bristol County Sheriff Paul Faroe's plans for change. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In New York City, a civil trial involving former President Donald Trump and a former advice columnist got underway today. This nearly 30 years after she says Trump raped her in a luxury department store dressing room, Eugene Carroll is expected to testify during this trial. Although Trump wasn't in court today, security remains tight in and around the area. Here's NPR's Ilya Meritz. Safety is a big, big concern at this trial. Uh, there's a lot of security. Jurors who were questioned uh, were questioned anonymously. They're, they did not give their names. They were known only by their numbers. And that's how they'll be known throughout the trial, not only to the public, but also to the attorneys, uh, to the parties, and to the judge. They will be escorted in and out of the building by vehicle. They'll be dropped at, at drop-off points, which are not shared with the public. All of this in an effort to uh, really ensure their safety uh, and ensure that this trial can run smoothly. Ilya Meritz in New York City. The South African government says it wants to quit the International Criminal Court. Kate Bartlett tells us that ruling party's stance against the ICC also highlights the country's controversial alliance with Russia and Vladimir Putin. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says his party believes the International Court treated some countries unfairly, which is why it has long wanted to pull out. Yes, the governing party, the African National Congress, has taken that decision that uh, it is prudent that uh, South Africa should pull out of the ICC. The ANC has close ties to the Kremlin and has refused to condemn the Russian military invasion of Ukraine. Putin is invited to South Africa later this year for a meeting of the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. If he attends, Pretoria is obliged to arrest him. For any- You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two black runners groups whose cheer parties were blocked off by Newton police at the Boston Marathon say they still want somebody to take responsibility for what happened. Newton police officers with bicycles lined the course in front of the group along the marathon course. As a result, fans could not get close to their friends who were running. Police say they made the move after race organizers notified them about fans walking into the street. WBR's Ali Jarmanning has more. The Boston Athletic Association organizes the race and met with the groups last week. It said in a statement it could have done better to create an inclusive environment. And Newton's mayor says she wants to meet with the groups. But Liz Rock, leader of the running group Trailblazers, tells WBR's Radio Boston that response hasn't been enough. I just want to hold someone accountable. I'm not sure who. I think it's a multiple people who should be held accountable. But I'm just kind of angry and frustrated. The groups are working with civil rights attorneys calling for an investigation into the police response. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. An Ashland woman and her 18-month-old daughter who were trapped in Sudan have safely left the country as fighting continues there. Relatives of Trillian Clifford and her daughter Alma say the two are now making their way back to the U.S. Clifford was working as a teacher in Sudan. Her sister-in-law, Rebecca Winter, says it will still be several days before Clifford is back in the Bay State. We're still very nervous for her because 
We understand that she still has a lot of travel ahead of her and there are security concerns involved. And then at the same time, I can't ignore the fact that so many people are still stranded in Sudan, both foreign nationals and innocent Sudanese civilians. Winter says Senator Elizabeth Warren's office was instrumental in the evacuation. The National Park Service has added two Massachusetts stops to its underground railroad network. They include a self-guided audio tour in Boston and the Dr. Isaac Fisk House in Fall River. Fall Rivers Preservation Society says Fisk was a surgeon and known abolitionist who provided refuge to formerly enslaved people who are arriving by ship to New Bedford or to Cape Cod. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Overcast overnight tonight, some scattered showers around, down about 40 degrees. Should make it up to the mid-50s once again tomorrow, a little bit cooler than usual for this time of year. And then tomorrow, mainly sunny skies, a few clouds around. And for Thursday, still in the mid-50s with clouds and sunshine both. This is 90.9 WBUR, 53 degrees in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries. Brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spinoff. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Alyssa Block in Washington. The civil trial in a lawsuit brought by writer E. Jean Carroll against former President Donald Trump started today in New York. It involves allegations of sexual assault, and it's moving quickly. A federal jury was seated this morning, and lawyers gave their opening statements after lunch. NPR's Ilya Meritz has been in court, and he joins us now. And Ilya, this is a civil lawsuit, but it spins off an allegation of rape. Why don't you walk us through the case? Sure. So last fall, E. Jean Carroll, a writer who's known as a longtime advice columnist for women's magazines, filed a complaint against Donald Trump, and it really has two parts, battery and defamation. Battery is the legal term that's used here, but what Carol says Trump did is he raped her. She says it happened in the changing room of the Bergdorf Goodman department store in Manhattan, either in 1995 or 1996. And I should say Carol's able to bring this case because of a law that passed here in New York that allowed plaintiffs alleging sexual assault to bring suits outside of the statute of limitations for a limited period of time. Next part of the case is defamation. Carol says Trump's response to her story damaged her credibility, hit her bottom line, deprived her of income and prestige she otherwise would have enjoyed. Trump and his lawyers deny all of it. Okay, so the jury is seated. What did the attorneys say in their opening statements? Carol's lawyer, Sean Crowley, started by describing the alleged rape in pretty graphic and disturbing detail with Trump forcing himself on Carol behind a locked door in that department store at night when no one is around, was around. But this is an almost 30-year-old case. What Crowley said next really matters. She said, this is not a he said, she said case. She said, E. Jean has a lot of evidence to corroborate the assault, even though there is no camera evidence and no police report. Uh, what she does have is statements from two friends of E. Jean's who, told, who were told 
almost immediately about the alleged assault. Then it was time for Trump attorney Joe Tacopina to speak for the defense. He was one of five men at the defense table. The plaintiff had two men and two women. And Takapina very aggressively went after Carol's credibility. He said what she was doing is an affront to justice. He said she is undermining real rape victims. And he said Carol made these allegations to make money and raise her fame and prestige, and that she has succeeded at that. And I was just really struck by how much Takapina got into the politics of this and how angry he seemed. Now, I understand the judge in the case had some stern words for those involved. What was said? Uh, Judge Lewis Kaplan is very concerned about security, and before prospective jurors were brought in for questioning, he told the two legal teams to please tell their clients to refrain from statements that could incite violence or civil unrest. Those were his words, and he warned them against conduct with the potential to jeopardize the safety of any individuals or the rule of law. This is strikingly similar language to what we heard from another judge in another Trump case, uh, that criminal falsification of business records case where Trump pleaded not guilty just earlier this month. It was really striking to me. Now, Ilya, the jurors in this case are anonymous. What do we know about them? Uh, it's a nine-member jury, six men, three women, and beyond that, not very much. Uh, the jurors will be known by their numbers throughout the process, no names, and for their safety, they're being driven in and out of the building each day and let out at a secure drop-off point. Judge Kaplan is not taking chances. He wants this trial to go smoothly. He is keenly aware of the potential for all kinds of mischief and bad deeds to happen around it. That's NPR's Ilya Meritz joining us from federal court in Manhattan, where he is covering the civil trial against former President Donald Trump. Ilya, thanks so much. You're very welcome. In Pakistan, a year of political deadlock has paralyzed the courts and unraveled the economy. And now there are fears that history could repeat itself. Pakistan is a place where generals have ruled for nearly half of its 75 years since becoming an independent country. NPR's Dia Hadid has more from Islamabad. So you feel circumstances are right for a military intervention? Imagine a country so enmeshed in troubles that a journalist asks a former prime minister if he thinks there's an impending military takeover. And the answer is... I leave that for you to judge. But yes, in the past, in less severe circumstances, the military has taken over. That former prime minister is Shahid Hakan Abbasi. He isn't alone because, as one columnist put it, the wheels are falling off Pakistan. The unpopular ruling coalition refuses to hold provincial elections on time. The opposition leader, another former prime minister, Imran Khan, is threatening street protests if they don't. Judges of the Supreme Court are fighting among themselves. Millions are going hungry as inflation soars and industries shut down amid an economic crisis. The military says it has no plans to seize power, but Pakistan can't really escape its 75-year history where this was a repeated occurrence. Madiha Afzal is a fellow at the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. I think now we're hearing rumblings because the crises, you know, plural, are so acute. Now Pakistanis half-joke that they're expecting to hear the vintage version of their national anthem blaring on state TV. <laughs> followed by a general promising to save the country. But that hasn't happened in Pakistan since the last military ruler stepped down a decade and a half ago. Since then, the country's been ruled by civilians who've handed power to each other through the ballot box. But as Pakistan's problems grow, other prominent elites have expressed their fear that the military might return. 
They include the foreign minister, who warned Parliament that, quote, a third force would take advantage of the situation if politicians couldn't resolve their problems. Then there's Mushahid Hussein, a senator with the ruling coalition. We meet in his garden. If no sense is instilled in that very divisive political atmosphere, then all bets are off. In this vacuum, some general Ainda Khan can take over. Ainda means future. That's a generic way of describing a military intervention. A generic way of describing a military intervention. But the military's divided. The top brass doesn't like the opposition leader Imran Khan, so they support delaying elections for now. That's according to prominent columnist with the Liberal Daily Dawn. Her name is Arafa Noor, and she says the military has its own problems because... The lower rank and file in the military itself supports Imran Khan. So does Pakistan's middle classes, a constituency that was once firmly with the army. This time, if you hold a coup, there will be very few people welcoming that coup because a lot of them now feel that Imran Khan is a better choice for Pakistan. A man who once ran Pakistan's powerful military intelligence agency agrees. Javed Ashraf Qazi says for now, the army is looking to the Supreme Court to try resolve Pakistan's deadlock. There is still hope that the crisis would be solved without the military intervention. So long as Supreme Court is active and there is a chance that they might succeed in bringing these quarrelling politicians together. But what if these efforts fail? That's the question asked by political economist and columnist Niaz Mortaza. Ultimately, if things get too bad and it seems that it's just becoming a bit too chaotic, they will probably reassert themselves in some way or the other. In some way or the other. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Montana's House of Representatives canceled its floor session today in an ongoing conflict over comments by a transgender lawmaker. Yesterday, House leaders summoned police to clear noisy protesters from the chamber. Montana Public Radio's Shaley Rager reports. The conflict started last Tuesday when Democratic Representative Zoe Zephyr spoke in opposition to a bill that would ban gender-affirming care for transgender minors. She alluded to studies that show high rates of suicidality among youth who experience gender dysphoria without treatment. If you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. Immediately afterward, House Majority Leader Sue Vinton and the Republican caucus stood in protest. That is entirely inappropriate, disrespectful, and uncalled for. We can debate matters civilly and with respect for each other. Thank you. Two days after that exchange, Zephyr attempted to speak on another bill, but Speaker Regeer refused to recognize her. Democrats objected, but Regeer said it's within his power to choose who he calls on during debate and that it's his responsibility to maintain decorum. No representative is above our House rules. Our House rules apply to all. 100 representatives will take this to the board. 
Most Republican lawmakers agreed and twice last week voted to uphold the block on Zephyr's speech. She has not been allowed to speak on any bills since. On Monday, more than 150 of Zephyr's supporters rallied to support her on the Capitol steps. Then, protesters came inside and filled the House gallery. When Zephyr tried to speak and was again blocked, they began chanting, let her speak. House Speaker Matt Regeer called on the chamber's sergeant-at-arms to clear the public gallery where the demonstrators stood. Police began asking them to leave. When they refused, about a dozen law enforcement in riot gear began forcibly removing them. Seven protesters were arrested for criminal trespassing. As they waited outside of the Capitol building in handcuffs to be taken for booking, Zephyr spoke to reporters. I felt pride in them because when they stood up, they are standing on behalf of democracy. They are standing to make sure that their electeds get heard, that the causes they care about don't get silenced. This morning, Speaker Regeer canceled the House floor session for the day. Speaking to the media, Regeer did not say why or take questions. He disputed the characterization of Zephyr being silenced, saying she has the option to apologize and again be recognized on the floor. The choice to not follow House rules is one that Representative Zephyr has made. The only person silencing Representative Zephyr is Representative Zephyr. Democratic leaders disagree Zephyr broke the rules against using accusatory language on the floor and say the speaker doesn't have the right to block her speech indefinitely, but they don't have the power to overrule the speaker. The situation is what drew about 100 protesters to fill the House gallery yesterday. They contend their protest was nonviolent, but Speaker Regeer called it a riot and said it was a dark day in the State House. Democrat Kim Abbott is House Minority Leader. Protests like that are part of this process, and absolutely people have the right to come in and peacefully protest, and that's what they did. Even though work in the House is paused, they're still under a tight deadline. Montana's Constitution says the session must adjourn in eight days, and they've yet to finish piecing together a budget, typically their most important task. Republican leaders could call for a vote to formally censure Representative Zephyr, but have not done so. For NPR News, I'm Shaylee Riker in Helena, Montana. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, President Biden says he's running for a second term at the White House. Our story in about 15 minutes. And coming up next, Dolly and Billy, as in Parton and the Kid. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. The Celtics hope to put the wraps on their playoff series with the Hawks tonight at the TD Garden. Boston leads Atlanta three games to one in the best of seven series. A win tonight could push the Celts into the second round of the Eastern Conference final playoffs against the Philadelphia 76ers. Tip-off tonight is 7.30. And tonight the Red Sox try to keep Baltimore at bay after the Orioles took game one of their series last night. The Sox go with Corey Kluber tonight against Kyle Bradish for the Birds. 6.30 start time in Baltimore. Cloudy breezy tonight, maybe some showers down around 40. Then for tomorrow, clouds through part of the day anyway, some sunshine with temperatures in the mid-50s. WBUR supporters include BG Catering Concepts, who believes in the power of great food to bring people together. Learn more at bgcateringconcepts.com. 
What comes to mind when you hear the name Michael Jackson? He's so embedded in the fabric of my childhood, growing up in Harlem, listening to him with my cousins. But then it's not that simple. I came to see him in many ways as this sort of heartbreaking, tragic figure and someone who may well have done awful things to others. Unpacking Michael Jackson's complicated legacy on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Melissa Block. It's really hard to make it in the music business, but if you continue to be yourself and practice and find good friends, you'll do it. That's what a certain dog musician named Billy the Kid would tell you. You can read about his rough beginnings in the new children's book, Billy the Kid Makes It Big. His story is brought to us by someone who knows a thing or two about sticking to a music career, the one and only... Dolly Parton, and she joins us now from Nashville. Ms. Parton, it's great to have you with us today. Well, thank you, Melissa. It's good to be with you. In the introduction to your book, you say that, that Billy in the story is actually modeled on your god dog. Uh, tell us about Billy. Who is he? Well, Billy belongs to my manager, Danny Nozell. And when Danny first brought him to the studio, I just fell in love with him. He's a tiny little thing. And I said, I have to be his extra mama or he has to be my god dog. So I just claimed him and he just took to me right away. So we've just been little partners ever since. And I have all these wonderful little stories I even tell about Billy to my little nieces and nephews. You wouldn't believe what Billy did today. Billy did this, Billy did that. And so we got the (laughs) idea that maybe I should write books with Billy from his viewpoint. So it has the music in it. It's about confidence and about standing up to bullies and that sort of thing. So it's really got a lot of meaningful things, I think, for children. What kind of dog is Billy in in real life? Billy is a French bulldog. A French bulldog. And there's a picture of you with him. He's pretty cute. He's got those ears that stand straight up. In the book, he's wearing a a red and white bow tie, looking very stylish. (laughs) Well, he likes to dress up, especially when he's auditioned for a show like he does in the book. He's got his little guitar, which I kind of based loosely on my first little guitar, which was a little baby Martin guitar. And then, of course, he's got to dress up and be ready for country music because it's a story about him coming to Nashville, trying to make it in the business and being discouraged, feeling sad and meeting some friends that gave him confidence. And they were all kind of in it together, all there for the same reasons and just keeping on with their dreams. And they wound up winning the contest. You know, that that idea of standing up to bullies or, you know, uh, overcoming people who mock you or make fun of you, I'm thinking it's a theme that runs through a whole bunch of your music. And I was listening to the first song that you recorded way back in 1959. You were 13 years old. um, And it's a song you wrote. It's called, and it's appropriate for this conversation, it's called Puppy Love. Let's hear a little bit of it. Puppy love, puppy love, they all call it puppy love. I'm old enough now to kiss and hug, and I like it. It's puppy love. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you still remember it. <laughs> oh, of course, I sing it on stage. So this this song, Puppy Love, um, you're singing, apart from the puppy love part, you're singing about a mean boy who pulls your pigtails and he won't carry your books and he rags on your looks. And I wonder if you remember feeling that way as a kid, as that 13-year-old Dolly Parton. 
Yeah, well, actually, I remember even years before that, I got really bullied, and I, I have a song and a book called The Coat of Many Colors. My coat of many colors that my mama made for me Made only from rags, but I wore it so proudly She made that coat. She told me that story about Joseph in the Bible, and, boy, I thought I, I just really looked just like Joseph. And I was so proud of it, wore it to school, and the kids all laughed and said it was just rags and I didn't look like Joseph and that we was poor and all that. Of course, they were poor too, but I guess we were poorer. <laughs> but anyway, I remember crying so hard and hurt and was even hurt at Mama because I felt like she'd kind of deceived me somehow. But kids always remember things like that, your first deep hurt. When you were growing up in the Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee, do you remember having books at home? Was reading, was was writing part of your no, childhood? We didn't, no, we didn't have books at home because mm-hmm. we had too many kids. If they got chewed up or peed on or whatever kids do in a house like ours, we had one kid after another. Daddy couldn't afford to pay for that, so they, they'd just tell us, don't bring books home, and we didn't. So I read at school. We had the Bible. Mama read that all the time. So that was my first encounters. Of course, I remember the first little book that we have in our imagination library is called The Little Engine That Could. And that little book was amazing to me because it talked about the same thing, confidence. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I did. The program you started that has sent books to, I think, more than two million kids at this point. Yeah, the Imagination Library is called. It started about 26 years ago, I think, and my dad helped me with that. But where we give books to children, all children, not you don't have to be poor or whatever. It's for anybody that wants to sign up. They can get a book once a month till they start school. What was the root of that for you? I think it spins off of an experience that, with your dad. Your dad was not able to read or write, I think. My dad was country, and The schools were far away. They lived back in the mountains. They had to work in the fields. They had to work at home. They had to do the stuff to help feed the family and keep that together. And my dad didn't get a chance to read or write. And that bothered him. And that bothered me that it bothered him. So I got this idea to start the program where we give books to children. And so it just grew so fast. What did he tell you about that program, what it meant to him? He just told me he was very proud proud of me and uh, that he felt like that I was doing something special. Mm. And true sorry. Whew, got a little emotional. But mm. anyway, I was proud that he got to be part of something great and he could feel better about himself. Yeah. Do you want to take a minute? I think I'm okay. Just get on something else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you still, as a songwriter, still finding stories inside yourself that you need to tell after all these years? If I do, they come out when they're ready, and I'll go after it. But I don't. there's nothing I know that I want to write about. That I, But when they show up, I'll go ahead and do it. There's nothing I'm afraid or I don't have any. I'm not holding any secrets about something I hesitate to write. How do songs show up for you? Sometimes I get woke up in the middle of the night because I often dream about singing songs. And I used to think I'd remember where I'll be singing in a dream. And I know it's not a song I know. And so uh, I just try to keep a little tape recorder or a notepad. So, But even on planes, I just write on a barf bag. If I get an idea for a song, I just 
find, dig in my purse, try to find a pencil and write on anything I can. That's how all writers do it, though. Somebody that really writes all the time, like I do. You ever write with a lipstick? I've written with my lipstick and I've written with my <laughs> eyebrow pencil a lot. Probably a little easier with an eyebrow pencil, I would think. It's a little better. It's a little easier. <laughs> well, Dolly Parton, it has been a treat to talk with you today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you. Dolly Parton's new children's book is Billy the Kid Makes It Big. So in every piece we love, she made my coat of many colors. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at Lemelson.org. From Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Generally cloudy skies into the night. Maybe some showers down around 40 degrees. Tomorrow, not a lot of change. Isolated showers in the afternoon, partly to mostly sunny skies. Thursday should be about equal parts sun and clouds. Shower is possible again. Temperatures in the mid-50s. 53 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden is running for re-election and is expected to get the nomination. The only way that he does not stay the Democratic nominee for president through 2024 is if there is some kind of unfortunate concern with regards to his health or his family. Biden's official announcement coming up on this Tuesday, April 25th. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, in many states that ban abortion, there's an exception for life-threatening emergencies. But how do hospitals decide what situations qualify? 400 years after Shakespeare's first folio was printed, it's up for sale for $7.5 million. What's in it? Coming up. And singer-songwriter Lucinda Williams talks about her new memoir, Don't Tell Anyone the Secrets I Told You, about her music and her drive to recover from a stroke. It's 601 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. 
President Biden made his first remarks in Washington after launching his re-election campaign this morning. Biden speaking at a legislative conference for union workers and touting his administration's success in boosting manufacturing. But he said there's still more work to do. NPR's Deepa Chevron reports. Hours after making it official that he's seeking a second term, President Biden got an enthusiastic reception at the conference for the North America Building Trades Unions. Let's go, Joe! The president said it was time to, quote, finish the job, and he criticized Republicans in Congress, namely House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, for their budget plan that would make cuts to social programs. The threat that MAGA Republicans pose is to take us to a place we've never been. Biden said some people look at the economy through the eyes of Wall Street, but he says he looks at it through the eyes of Scranton, Pennsylvania, and Claymont, Delaware, where he grew up. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Washington has become the 10th state to restrict the sale of assault-style weapons. NPR's Martin Costi reports from Seattle. States such as New York and California have banned the sale of certain semi-automatic rifles for years. But after the school massacre in Uvalde, Texas, more followed suit. Delaware, Illinois, and now Washington State, where the ban took effect the moment it was signed by Governor Jay Inslee. No one needs an AR-15 to protect your family. You only need it to kill other families. And for that reason, we are taking action today. The state is also setting a 10-day waiting period and requiring safety training for all gun purchases starting next year. Gun rights groups have promised to sue, saying the restrictions violate the U.S. Supreme Court's Bruin decision, which limits state gun control laws. Martin Costi, NPR News, Seattle. Award-winning singer and actor Harry Belafonte has died. Belafonte, who also was a dedicated activist, dying at his home in New York today. He sold millions of records and was also a star of stage and screen, along with supporting civil rights. In a 1981 interview, he says his success far exceeded his expectations. Nowhere in my boyhood dreams was there the, the, the idea that one day I would be in Hollywood one day. I would be on Broadway or one day I would be making an album that would be successful. I was quite content, as most blacks were in that period, to just practice my art form and hopefully I'd find a constituency somewhere in the world. Along with his success as an actor and songwriter, Belafonte worked closely with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1960s. Harry Belafonte died of congestive heart failure. He was 96 years old. Shares of First Republic Bank continued their downward slide today after the bank said depositors withdrew more than $100 billion during last month's crisis. It fears it would be the third bank to go under after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. That weighed on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 344 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's a new chapter in the debate over the MCAS. That's the standardized test for Massachusetts school students. A group is formed to defend the exam against critics who say the test is too high stakes and slanted to favor whiter and wealthier communities. WBUR's Max Larkin has more. The new group of education reform advocates and educators is rallying around the test. Voices for Academic Equity sees room for improvement, like offering the MCAS in multiple languages and using AI to grade it more quickly. But group member Mary Tamer says the test still has an important role to play. We have no other way of knowing exactly how every child is doing in the classroom. There is a reason for us to know if we are falling short on our promise. State lawmakers are considering a bill that would lower the stakes of the MCAS, for example, ending its use as a high school graduation requirement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. 
Leaders in the Worcester County town of North Brookfield are meeting this hour to revisit a vote earlier this month that put a halt to the upcoming Pride event. The select board initially gave approval for the gathering, but two weeks ago it revoked that permission because the event included a drag show. The board said the show violated restrictions on adult entertainment. The ACLU has threatened to sue if permission for the show is not reinstated. A state's board education board is considering how to address the statewide teacher shortage. Board members voted today to begin the process of amending licensing regulations that would make it easier for already licensed teachers to get authorization to instruct courses in special ed and English as a second language. The board is also looking to streamline the licensing process for school nurses. Zoom and FaceTime aren't just for online meetings and calls to grandma anymore. Researchers at Northeastern, MIT, and the University of Glasgow found that parrots were able to learn how to use tablets to make video calls and socialize. The study found the calls resulted in positive experiences for the birds, such as learning new skills from their feathery friends. Rebecca Kleinberger is an assistant professor at Northeastern University. She observed the birds embrace their personalities firsthand. Some of them really enjoy the call because they would come close and then they would almost cuddle the the tablets and fall asleep next to each other and preen with each other. And others would love the call because it was the opportunity to show off. Klein Berger says the parrots made 147 video calls over two months during the study. In the forecast, 53 degrees now, generally cloudy skies into the night. Maybe some showers again, about 40 degrees. For tomorrow, isolated showers in the afternoon with partly to mostly sunny skies. Thursday should be partly sunny, clouds and sunshine both. Maybe some showers once again, still in the mid-50s. 53 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. This time yesterday, we were telling you about the big expected announcement from President Biden. And today, he released a video to make it official. He is running for re-election in 2024. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. It's a message that Democrats feel worked well for them during the midterms, putting abortion, voting rights, and democracy front and center. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith has more. In many ways, this announcement shouldn't come as a surprise at all. Biden has been saying he plans to run for re-election since his earliest days in office. In his first formal White House press conference back in March of 2021, Biden was pressed on his plans. No, an answer is yes. My plan is to run for re-election. That's my expectation. The questions kept coming in interviews and press conferences, in part because at 80 years old, Biden is already the oldest president in U.S. history. Many expected him to be a transitional figure, defeating former President Donald Trump and then clearing the way for the next generation of Democratic leaders. But Biden has also made it clear he isn't done. Let's finish the job. Biden repeated that line so many times in his State of the Union address, it was hard to miss the message. And although Biden's approval ratings have been underwater for most of his presidency, in today's hyperpolarized political climate, that may matter less than ever. 
That's according to Kristen Soltis-Anderson, a pollster at Echelon Insights. Joe Biden may not have a ton of voters who are fired up for him, but that also may not be necessary if Republicans nominate a candidate who is extremely off-putting to a majority of the electorate. Like Donald Trump, for instance, who has embraced extremism and still denies the outcome of the 2020 election. The former president is expected to face a vigorous Republican primary, but he remains the GOP frontrunner. Biden has already beaten him once. And Jim Messina, who ran President Barack Obama's re-election campaign in 2012, says Biden now has a record to run on, one he doesn't get much credit for. So many voters think about politics on average four minutes a week, and they they don't know that he passed huge health care breaks and the largest payment on climate change in, in world history and uh, lowered prescription drugs and got all these things done. We have to talk about that stuff. But there's still the age question. Messina says Biden put a lot of worries to rest with his State of the Union address delivered to the largest TV audience he's likely to see all year. He came out um, with energy, with focus, with a message, uh, and just reminded everyone of the Joe Biden we all know and love. Then a couple of weeks later, he pulled off a high-stakes secret trip to Kyiv, Ukraine. One year later, Kyiv stands, and Ukraine stands, democracy stands, the Americans stands with you, and the world stands with you. It was another show of vitality in the face of concern about Biden's age. He has been dismissed and discounted at every turn and still overperformed expectations. Liz Smith is a Democratic political consultant who worked for one of Biden's opponents in the 2020 presidential primary. And we saw a lot of the similar doubts uh, raised about him in 2020, that he was too old to run for president, that um, he wouldn't be Democratic, Democrat's strongest nominee, that he wouldn't be able to unify the party. And everyone was wrong. Being doubted and proving people wrong is a theme of Biden's long political career. Even with polls showing Democratic voters would welcome an alternative, the Democratic establishment has fallen in line. Smith and Messina say they doubt Biden will face any serious challenges for the nomination. Anderson says there's really only one thing that could stand in Biden's way. The only way that he does not stay the Democratic nominee for president through 2024 is if there is some kind of unfortunate concern with regards to his health or his family. As Biden has said, he is a believer in fate. And right now, the stars are aligned for him to sit back and watch the Republicans duke it out for a chance to challenge him. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Most states that ban abortion have exceptions for medical emergencies or for preserving the life of the mother. But since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last June, there have been many cases where doctors weren't sure how to apply those exceptions. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin is here to tell us about how this is playing out in Oklahoma. Selena, hi. Hi, Melissa. So Oklahoma is a Republican-controlled state. It's got a governor who is staunchly opposed to abortion rights. What is the law there now? 
Well, there are currently three overlapping abortion bans with different definitions and exceptions, so it gets pretty confusing. One law comes with felony charges and up to five years in prison for providers, so the stakes for interpreting the laws correctly are real for doctors and hospitals. And one of the big issues is how to understand the life exception. And walk us through that. What is the confusion there about how to interpret that? It kind of seems like a simple thing at first, but it's actually not. So let me give you an example. J.C. Staten is 25. She's a stay-at-home home mom of three in central Oklahoma. In February, she learned she had a type of molar pregnancy in which some of the tissue was cancerous. Her OBGYN told her she could hemorrhage or even die. Which is terrifying prospect. What happened next for J.C. Staten? Well, she had trouble getting care. The treatment for a patient in her condition is a dilation and curatage, or DNC, which is an abortion procedure that clears pregnancy tissue from the uterus. Her OBGYN would not give her that treatment. She was transferred to another hospital and another, and no one would provide the DNC. At one hospital, J.C. Staten said staff told her this. They said the best we can tell you to do is sit in the parking lot, and if anything else happens, we will be ready to help you. But we cannot touch you unless you are crashing in front of us or your blood pressure goes so high that you are fixing to have a heart attack. She ended up having to leave the state for treatment, which gives you a sense for how stuck Oklahoma providers are when it comes to navigating these medical exceptions. And Selena, do you have a sense of the bigger picture of how those policies are playing out for other patients around Oklahoma? Well, yeah, there's actually new research out today that gives a sense of that. So researchers surveyed hospitals in the state on their abortion policies using what's called a mystery shopper research methodology. So basically, several young women called 34 hospitals in Oklahoma with a script saying they were pregnant for the first time, trying to decide which Oklahoma hospital to go to for care, and wanted to understand the hospital's policies and processes for providing abortions if complications arose during the pregnancy. So they called 34 hospitals. What did they find? Well, basically, a lot of confusion. Most hospitals could not provide any information about the policies. Three said they would never provide an abortion in any circumstance. These researchers were also told some really concerning things. I talked to Dr. Michelle Heisler, professor at the University of Michigan and medical director of Physicians for Human Rights, who was one of the study's authors. In one of the hospitals, a person was trying to be reassuring, and she said, oh, well, you know, in the case of a medical emergency, we would try to use the woman's body as an incubator to just try to keep the pregnancy going as long as possible. The full findings were published today, along with a commentary in the Lancet Medical Journal. And Selena, any response from hospitals in Oklahoma about those findings? Well, the Oklahoma Hospital Association did not provide anyone for an interview. Oklahomans for Life did not respond to my request for comment. There's ongoing legislation and court cases in Oklahoma, but it is a very conservative state, so it's not likely there will be significant changes to abortion laws there anytime soon. That's NPR's Selena simmons and Selena, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. 400 years ago, what may be the most significant book in the English language first appeared in print. If we didn't have this book, you know, just the the implications of that are, are really substantial. That's Emma Smith of the University of Oxford. She's talking about William Shakespeare's first folio, a near complete collection of 36 of the Bard's plays published seven years after his death. If we didn't have this book, we wouldn't care about Shakespeare at all. Half of the plays would have just been lost. We wouldn't have Julius Caesar. We wouldn't have The Tempest. We wouldn't have Macbeth. uh, And we wouldn't have all the kind of cultural significance that they have got. 
To commemorate the book's anniversary, a rare books dealer in London has collected a copy of the first folio, along with the second, third, and fourth editions of the book. Smith got a preview. I'd never seen all those four 17th century books open in the same place at the same time. And that's saying something. She's a Shakespeare scholar. The bookseller, Palm Harrington, also tracked down a first edition of Shakespeare's poems. And he put the whole lot of five books up for sale at $10.5 million. The first folio is the priciest at $7.5 million. It's this very fresh and sort of vibrant copy. Um, It's very authentic. It's sort of it crackles as you open the paper. And he says that fresh condition is rare, especially for popular titles like Shakespeare's. Because it was read. It was read to death in a lot of cases. And they didn't have lighting. They used candles and candle wax strips on these books. Um, and so damage can happen. But don't even think about giving these books the white glove treatment. We do not use white gloves. They are nasty and evil and harm books. So we wash our hands and they're dry. And if you have clean, dry hand, you can handle these books. Now, if the mere thought of Shakespeare has you thinking, uh, no thanks, I'd rather not relive ninth grade English, the Bard's friends who assembled the first folio left some advice in the book's preface. Here's Emma Smith again. They say, read him, therefore, again and again. And then if you do not like him, surely you are in some manifest danger not to understand him. So kind of saying you can't not like this stuff. You can only not get it. That's that's the only way. The fourth folio has already sold for $235,000, the poems for 750000 But the first three folios should be on display later this week at the New York International Antiquarian Book Fair, if you want to catch a glimpse. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on Marketplace on WBUR, airlines are optimistic about getting back to pre-pandemic level passenger counts, but can they thrive without the full return of their most lucrative customers, business travelers? Marketplace starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. Stocks took a downturn on Wall Street today. The Dow lost a full percent, S&P fell more than 1.5%, and the Nasdaq lost the most, nearly 2%. Spirit Airlines is expanding operations at Logan Airport. The discount carrier is adding nonstop flights from Boston to five cities. Service to Charlotte and Dallas begins in June. Trips to Los Angeles start in July. Spirit will add flights to Houston and Phoenix in August. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices, catering your office lunch in greater Boston, lacuchara.com. Lots of clouds around, breezy, sporadic showers through this evening, and then for the first part of the night tonight, should be down around 40 degrees overnight, then clouds should last early into tomorrow morning, eventually some sunshine breaking through tomorrow, breezy up around 54 degrees. Thursday, some clouds gaining on the sun, still bright in some spots, holding to the mid-50s. 53 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile, all from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. When singer-songwriter Lucinda Williams was trying to get signed by a major record label, her iconic breakup song, Changed the Locks, was rejected by Los Angeles record executives as too country for rock. Then executives in Nashville passed on the song and Williams because, as they said, it was too rock for country. The back and forth shows the challenge Williams faced early in her career. Her music defied categorization. In the end, what kind of music Williams created didn't matter. Rough Trade Records signed the artist, and Change the Locks was part of Williams' first big commercial record. There were more albums, there was critical acclaim, and three Grammys. And now, at 70 years old, Williams is still writing songs and performing, despite suffering a stroke in 2020. Lucinda Williams has also written a memoir, and she's with me now to talk about it. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. I love your show. I listen to it all the time. Thank you for being here. Lucinda, I want to start by asking you about something that comes up in one of the first pages of your book, and it's a list of the places that you lived. And if I'm counting these correctly, that's 15 places by the time you were 20 years old. Why did you move around so much? Well, my dad was a college professor. So I was an academic brat. My dad would teach for a year or two at a certain college and then move on to another college. That experience of moving around so much, it made it into your music. There is a moment in the book where you talk about the first time your father heard you play the song Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Sitting in the kitchen, the house of Macon, Loretta singing on the radio. Can you just tell us a little bit about that song and what that moment meant for you? Yeah, that song is, you have to imagine, it's life as seen through a child's eyes, trying to get ready to leave to go somewhere and trying to find, you know, the keys and packing the suitcases and everything. The child in the back seat listening to voices in the front seat. Telephone poles, trees and wires fly on I was playing at the Bluebird in Nashville, and my father was in the audience, and I performed the song, and it was the first time he'd heard it, and I went backstage afterwards, and he told me how sorry he was. And I said, Dad, what do you mean? And he said, well, that new song you wrote, he said, you're the child in the back seat. And until that moment, I hadn't realized that I was writing about myself. He had recognized that. So it's kind of a bittersweet moment. As a person who loves to write, I loved the way you described your writing process in this book and the idea that you put into my mind of you carrying this suitcase full of references and notes and snippets of ideas so that they're there at your fingertips anytime, ready to be deployed into a song. Do you still carry a briefcase like that? 
Yeah, well, I've got it at home right now. I had so many notes and miscellaneous pieces of paper with lines and everything on them that I finally decided to create these files for each separate song. So like I could pull out a file for a certain song that I wanted to work on some more. It just made it easier to access everything. I like, you know, pen and paper. Can you let us in on an example of one of the notes that we might find in there? Well, might be a song that I started and haven't finished yet. You know, I've worked on songs sometimes for a few years off and on, like Drunken Angel. That one took a long time. What made it take so long? I mean, I was trying to describe this particular person. And the thing is, when I go in to write about someone like, you know, somebody who's maybe has a drinking problem and, you know, is somewhat self-destructive or something like that, as the writer, I have to be compassionate. I've got to put some of myself in there. I don't want to sound judgmental. That takes a lot of thought and a lot of work for that to come across. As we mentioned, you had a stroke back a few years ago. I'd like to ask you, how are you doing? How has recovery been going? Well, I told somebody the other day, recovery is a Sorry, was can you say words like that on the air? You know, we can bleep things. <laughs> okay. You know, and I've had a lot of rehab, a lot of physical therapy, and I credit that with me getting back on my feet as soon as I did, because, I mean, I couldn't even walk at first. I literally would try to walk across the room and lose my balance and fall down. Mm. I had to practice with a cane and They gave me a walker to use and, you know, and then I had a wheelchair for a short amount of time, but I learned to walk, you know, that I learned pretty quickly because I didn't want to be dependent. So I got out of the wheelchair, I got off the cane and I'm walking, but slowly, but, you know, not the way I used to. Has your recovery changed the way you write your music? Well, I haven't been able to play guitar, Mm. which has been a real drag. I'm hoping that'll come back too, just like my walking did. But I'm still doing it. I'm still writing and I'm still performing with my band. I just don't play, but they back me up and I sing. My voice is still, is fine. That hasn't been affected. I find myself writing in my head a lot. I mean, you have had this incredible career and created so much beautiful music. Do you think about what might come next for you? Well, like I mentioned, you know, I'd love to be able to play guitar again like I was doing before. I mean, I would love to get back to the me that was before my stroke. You know, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but... That's what I would like to see. I don't know what to, who knows what the future might bring.
Lucinda Williams, her memoir, Don't Tell Anybody the Secrets I Told You, is out now. Lucinda, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. You're mine without truth. Man of quit, man of hate, man of envy and doubt. You're mine without a soul. All the money. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. President Biden made it official today he's a candidate for re-election. If he wins, Biden would be 82 at the start of his second term, making him the first octogenarian president in U.S. history. Looking into concerns about Biden's age and his bid for re-election tomorrow morning with Rupa Shinoy on 90.9 WBUR. Celtics meet Atlanta tonight in the TD Garden for Game 5 of their first-round playoff series. A Celts win would cinch them the second round and the Red Sox meet the Orioles in Baltimore. The game starts in about five minutes. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th semesteroff.com.